Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. You're listening to I'm Not Steve Kerr on the Believe Podcast Network. Now here are your hosts, the Resh Brothers, Colin and Scott. Brothers don't shake hands. Brothers gotta hug. Hello to our faithful followers and subscribers. We have arrived at episode 13. Scott's with us as usual. He's at home in Park City, Utah, and... When he was on a couple weeks ago with Lincoln Kennedy, he was complaining that the snow wasn't really there, but you're about to get blasted, right? Well, we did. It's been off and on, and and when it's been off, we've gotten some high temps, which has been really weird. Well, I don't know what's going what's going on in the world. It's coming. Things are okay. Well, it's coming. So if you're watching our webcast, the then then you can see for yourself. If listening to the pod, well, use your imagination here. I've got the Sierras behind me, Yosemite in the distance, snow-capped, pretty sweet view. And speaking of it, shameless plug time. Okay, my kick-ass wife. She runs this place that I'm in right now. Three bed, three bath. Find us at Red Vineyard Ranch on Instagram. Airbnb, Verbo, Booking.com. If you want to get away from it all, come for a stay. We'd love to have you. So we're in Mariposa, California uh, with my two kids right now. Our guest, he's about 900 miles that way, north. He's a man who needs no introduction, at least in the world of digital advertising. He is Shane Atchison. Shane is the North America CEO for Wonderman Thompson. Joins us from his home city in what used to be ours, Seattle, Washington. Shane, welcome to I'm Not Steve Kerr, man. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. And yeah, we we have no snow here. That's for sure. So <laughs> you can come here on July 5th when our summer starts and we'd gladly have you. But snow's I've coming heard... up there, too. I see there Portland. It's everyone's going to get blasted on the on the West Coast. Kid. Yes, Let's kids are hoping. So. Kid, the kids are hoping for a snow day next week, but we can't break the, break it to them that there's no such thing anymore. Yeah, yeah. Oh, a full true. transparency here. Uh, Scott and Shane go way back, and, and I mean, like, way back. You guys talk about the, the connection here. Oh, what are, what are we up to now, Shane? 20-plus years? That's, uh, that's, that's dating ourselves. <laughs> yeah, yeah, before the Internet, I think we met. Yeah, and, before uh, the Internet. <laughs> and here we are. Here, here we, we are. are. Good to see you. You too. So yeah. University of Washington, I got to set them both up because they won't say it. They were fraternity brothers. Um, yeah. I just sent you guys this photo. I'm going to throw it up here for those that, that check out our webcast. This was uh, tailgating, had to be Husky football, looked like about eight hours before the game. And, and that's you, Shane? Well, I, I'm not sure the photo, but if it's the one I, I, I'm thinking is, that was, yeah, I was warming uh-huh. up for the game. I still have <laughs> I still have four years of eligibility. That was my redshirt year. Uh-huh. I'm, five, I'm five foot seven and three quarters. And uh, for some reason, uh, Don James wouldn't take me that year. So, mm. so I, you know, I tried my hardest, as you can see, my chiseled physique. Uh, he missed out, that's for sure. Yeah, must have been why he got forced out. 
<laughs> yes, for sure, for sure. <laughs> Billy, Billy Joe, Billy Joe might have been something to do with it too. Well, that photo was sent to me by uh, a guy that we'll just call him Mac A. I don't know. Sent it to me, and uh, I thought it was appropriate. <laughs> I didn't know this was a roast, but I'm glad to take it. <laughs> That's how we start all podcasts. Yeah. That's how we do it. Perfect. Yeah, so if you've just downloaded this pod or watching for the first time on our YouTube page, I'm not Steve Kerr. Well, we created this to engage professionals at the top of their game in compelling conversation. That encompasses guests from the sports, media, uh, business, tech, and music sectors. Shane, the first CEO to join us as a guest. And as you know, Scott and I are never short on questions. We're going to start with Spo Vegas, as some of your old UW pals like to call it. Scott, what was your question about Spo Vegas for him? Well, I think it, we owe the the audience uh, <laughs> a little background on how how uh, Shane, you know, has gone from Spokane, Washington, to mm-hmm. head of North America for the world's biggest Marcom agency. Could you just maybe touch on that for for a minute and and kind of just kind of lead us through a little bit of that progression and how how that's all come to be? Yeah, well, you know, I. Uh... Grew up at the corner of Washington State, Idaho State, and Canada in the woods. Uh, proud to say we had no running water until I was 13. So we had an outhouse in the woods. And sounds more romantic now, 40 years later. But it sure was cold in the winter walking out to that outhouse. Oh. <laughs> um, we uh, you know, we grew up in a small town. And, and it was definitely a school that, uh, let's just say, going to college and doing something with uh, being an entrepreneur and, and starting a, a digital business was really not even on the radar. Um, I knew that I wanted to get into business. I knew that I wanted to move way out West, uh, four hours away to Seattle, uh, went to school at the university of Washington. And, uh, you know, it was, it was you know, very similar to maybe the Malcolm Gladwell, um, book, the outliers in the sense, uh, it was at the right time, you know, the internet started literally halfway through my university degree. Uh, I remember the day, I remember the day I heard about the internet. I was at a park listening to a band on a Sunday and a friend was explaining the internet. And I thought all this information is going to be available to everybody. And I compared that to my growing up when at best we would have access to the Encyclopedia Britannica, you know, where there might be a mm-hmm. paragraph or two on each topic to write a paper. And I thought, this is a game changer. This is, uh, this is where I want to be. And, uh, and I just focused and, and really focused on, um, being an expert in, you know, the early days of the internet and finding places where there were clients, uh, that were spending money and, and, uh, carried the business card saying I was a web expert and that became self-fulfilling prophecy after definitely my 10,000 hours focused on the topic and then some. But you did what, I mean, you, you don't hear a lot about, and that's someone starting their own company, their own business, while still in school, while still an undergrad. So when you were playing basketball in the backyard at Kaisai and running down to the annex and, and all that with, with Scott and those guys, and I would pop in from time to time, you were already starting a business on the side. Um, did you realize at, at that time, like, I know that I'm I'm going to be on to something here, and that's why you did it while everyone else was uh, going for the next cup on the keg. Yeah, you know, I mean, it was it was more organic than that. Um, 
I'm a people person and I'm a connector by, by, I guess, just by a natural personality. And I'm an ultimate generalist. So I don't write code. I don't design. Um, I don't do data analytics, but I definitely think a lot about human behavior, uh, human motivations. And I think it was, uh, it was just beautiful to be in Seattle where you had Microsoft, you know, the University of Washington, where you know, a big part of the internet was laid, you know, the foundations of that. And, and probably more than anything, I was listening, I was listening to what was happening and the early adopters, you know, were moving into the internet space and youth was on my side because nobody had any experience on the internet. So in some ways the bias towards somebody younger who could, uh, spell, you know, HTML probably, uh, has a good shot at, people believing that you know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And then uh, fortunately, I was able to find people that could follow through on the promises I would make. And, uh, you know, and then as you gain momentum, uh, you gain confidence, you gain expertise, you gain reputation, and then it built from there. Where does that um, attribute of just listening and, and, and kind of, you know, being attuned to that human nature side of things, where does that come from? Um, for me, it's the most interesting part of life. I, mean, mm -hmm. I think curiosity, curiosity means curiosity is the aspiration and complacency is the enemy. Uh, mm -hmm. Complacency is boring. Um, one of my pet peeves is when I hear people finish somebody else's sentence or ignore somebody. Um, the quietest person in the room has an opinion, has something in their mind and the more you can draw it out of people, the more you can learn. And I think as I've grown, you know, in age uh, and maturity, wherever, whatever you want to say about maturity, um, you know, when I'm at my worst, I rush and I don't take the time to listen. And when I'm at my best, you know, I ask somebody's advice and I pause and I listen. And the more I can understand somebody's motivation, somebody's agenda, the more I can relate to them, the more I can build off of that and try to find some mutual common ground. Um, in, in business, that's everything, right? Trust. In the early days of the internet, I used to say to our, our teams, when you're working with a client who has no idea what the internet is, that's okay because it's early days and that's why they're hiring us. They might just be um, nervous. They might be afraid. They might be afraid of messing up or losing their jobs. And so building trust is critical. And then connecting the dots on listening to somebody, understanding their agenda, building trust so that you can try new things. You know, I think that formula works, you know, in all business, certainly in personal relationships as well. Does that become more difficult sort of, you know, the higher you climb, so to speak, you're now at, you know, just this massive company being able to, to 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 stay grounded and not get caught up in that speed and in the you know when you think of the scale of responsibility you have yeah it's a great question i mean uh i work in a big company we're the largest advertising company on the planet uh i have responsibility for three thousand employees in north america um culture is something we talk a lot about is designing a culture where People can be authentic. People can bring new ideas. People can take risks. People can be themselves. Um, if anything, what I've noticed is the bigger you get, in some ways it's easier. 
because the bar is really low. The bar is really low on culture because, you know, scale typically is, you know, all about efficiency and parsing people's responsibilities in very neat and tidy uh, scopes. And I think the more you, you know, you uh, understand somebody, the more you connect with them, the, you know, the better, the better you are. And so I found that, you know, culture works at all scales uh, within a company and uh, even companies, you know, I, I give this advice a lot to people asking for advice for their first job out of college. And I say, focus on, you know, what are you, you know, what culture are you want? You know, who are you as a human? What culture works for you? And then as you look at companies, you know, they're interviewing you, but you're also interviewing them. Mm -hmm. And the more you can find a match of the company, company's culture with the culture you believe in, the more you can trust, the more you can feel safe, the more you can try new things. And to me, that's, you know, that's the secret in, in careers. Yeah. Trust and safety. Yeah. There's a quality, you know, that some people possess, I think. Some, um, some just call it the it factor. You know, you either have it or you don't. Uh, you seem to have a knack for, uh, I guess, finding the it factor in people. At least that's that's kind of what I'm uh, realizing about you, Shane. More specifically, what I've noticed and what others have also kind of said about you is your ability after a short amount of time um, to simply get people uh, who they are, what they're about. Um, do you see this in yourself? Why or why not? Oh, that's a tough question. It makes me uh, humble. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, I think everybody's a human. Everybody has a goal. Um, paying attention to people matters, making eye contact, understanding their name, understanding where they came from and where they're headed. Um, what are their strengths? Um, it's pretty easy to point out what's wrong in any situation, especially at work. Right? Anybody who's smart, if you focus, you, know, you can talk shit pretty quickly and be like, that's broken. To me, that's the easy part. The mm. hard part is actually saying, well, what should we do about it? Or even better, just go fix it or ask, you know, or ask permission later. Um, so I think that's key. I think um, asking the bold question without being creepy, I think is key. Mm. Uh, I love people that... Um, I call it starting with the third question. And when you meet somebody, you know, the first question is our social crutches, right? If you're at a cocktail party um, or you're on the sideline, the predictable questions are, you know, who are you? What do you, you know, where do you work? Do you have kids? What do you have? Those are all high school reunion questions, right? And it's <laughs> almost, it's almost sing songy. That's boring, right? Cause that's like, not that interesting. I think the key is finding people that almost naturally skip those high school reunion questions or those first three questions and start with the fourth question without being creepy or being too, you know, too affront on people. And I find that, that the people that they just move right into the subject matter at hand, who have curiosity, who have passion, whatever that passion is, that's beautiful. So quite often when I meet somebody, you know, I'm trying to wipe everything out of my head. Like I'm literally like, get my agenda out of the equation, get what I want out of the equation, get what I assume out of the equation, and just shut my mouth and listen. And the more I, you know, I can read people and understand where they're coming from, and then respond, then we might have a connection. 
And if I come in over the top and don't have any of those inputs, you know, A, it's harder. B, you're guessing and C, you know, you're, you're putting your own ego over somebody and that, you know, that's not fun for anybody. Do you think that's work. important as a CEO? I mean, the title can be um, intimidating to people, right? Do, do you, are you cognizant of that when you enter a room or, or people, you know, and you're seeing people that uh, to make them feel comfortable because they could be immediately intimidated just by your title? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's natural. That comes with the territory. I remember when we were a small company, we were 30 people and in one year we went from 30 people to 140 people and you know, we talked about our little company as, as as if it was a family member right we were talking about it um as we right in second person and i remember one day one of my partners said to me when did we become they when did we become they mm -hmm. and and as, as it relates to employees referring to this our company as this third party entity when it's just us. And, and I remember calling a meeting saying, let's watch out for that because they becomes this like inanimate object that has this, you know, has this force. And if it's us, then we can change things. We can listen, we can make them better. And, and I, the more, you know, more I listen to new employees or existing employees in a company, the more I hear them talk about the company as we, the more there, there's co-ownership, the more there's a belief system in it. So you know, what I talk a lot about is um, management. You know, I think the best management I've seen is peers you know, peers at the table, right? peers at the table, regardless of your role or your seniority. Everybody's treated as a peer that is at the table or on a Zoom call or Teams call. You know, if you have equity in the voices at the table, you're going to get more out of that than you would on your own and and that command and control and so as a ceo you know, i think my job is to actually create that environment create that safety for people to say hey i've got an idea yeah. and to listen to those people and the more you get that momentum the less the titles the less the hierarchy of being the ceo uh, will you know will be there so we've been trying new things like you know we're doing I don't know, we do a um, monthly town hall with our 3000 employees and that's a live video. And, you know, and I don't have, um, I'm there, you know, I'm there, I'm interviewing clients, I'm interviewing employees, I'm having people that created, you know, a Super Bowl ad, not only talk about the work, but kind of the backstory of why the work happened. Mm -hmm. And the more you can get people to talk about the work you know, from their own perspective, rather than kind of coming over the top and explaining the work, the better, you know, one of my pet peeves when we start meetings at work um, is when you kind of have that go around the room and introduce yourself. You know, mm -hmm. I'm always like kind of watching for the big dog I call it the big dog syndrome. And the big dog syndrome is the most senior person being alpha, starting the meeting, setting the agenda, introducing themselves, and then they introduce all of their colleagues for them. And they're mm -hmm. all like puppets. Right? Mm. They're all like smiling and nodding their heads and trying to actively listen. That is such a power miss, right? If you spread that power, if you enable every human at that table to introduce themselves, their relevance to the meeting, a lot of things happen, right? You are, you are signaling that we are a collective team of people, not just one person, 
we're signaling the voices and the skills of people. And then when you do that with kind of the, the company that you're working with, in our cases, our clients, you also start to hear, right, a, you know, kind of where people's heads are at. And the more they signal, you know, are they happy? Are they upset? Are they threatened? Are they on board? The more you can tune the conversation. So even those first impressions of how a meeting starts to me is how you, you know, how you build a CEO mindset that doesn't have to be, you know, be in charge. I'll give you another example, if you don't yeah, mind. Absolutely. Um, this is a, you know, this is a humble brag. I'll admit that. Um, when Satya Nadella, the CEO of Microsoft, mm -hmm. um, you know, moved into the leadership of Microsoft a number of years ago, you know, he has a mantra, which is changing the culture of Microsoft from being um, know-it-alls to learn-it-alls. Know-it-alls to learn-it-alls. And that mindset to say, it's okay to be vulnerable and not know something as long as you're not complacent to then say, I don't know. Right? You have to then go in and find the world's leading expert or go dig in and deeply and learn. So I happened to have my first really and only meeting you know, with Sacha and a big group of people. And they were bringing, it was a partnership meeting and they were bringing their best leaders to talk about the future of Microsoft innovation. Somebody talking about machine learning and artificial intelligence, somebody talking about accessibility of their products, somebody talking about big data and privacy you know, and the list goes on. And what the format was is somebody would come in from outside the room, you know, imagine 10 or actually probably like 20 executives at this big corporate executive table. And they would be, you know, an expert from Microsoft come stand at the podium and do a 10 minute presentation on, on the topic. And you knew this person was one of the smartest people in the room. And then there'd be a little Q and A for a couple of minutes. And then I watched Satya walk up, stand up, walked to the end of the table where the, the speaker was at, you know, kind of put his hand on the shoulder, almost like a coach would for a player coming off the field and whisper in that person's ear and then walk them out of the room. I don't know what he said, mm -hmm. but reading the body language, what I imagine he said is great job, right? Some positive reinforcement, some, you know, something he could have done better and the next step. And he modeled that in a fluid, natural way in front of all of us eight times in a row. Hmm. And I thought, I've never seen that in business before. No. I've seen that on the, on the field or the court, but I've never seen that before. And as I thought about that over time, if you compare that to most business climate, there would be somebody in that room taking notes, maybe a business manager or some other function, and they would write next steps and an email would be sent to that person a day or two later with all sorts of you know, opportunity for uh, the information to be lost in translation. Mm -hmm. And and whereas Satya just gave it immediate, it was there, we all saw it, and then it was done. And I just look at that and go, that's, that's leadership in action. Mm -hmm. That's modern leadership. I would want to work for him. I would mm -hmm. want to work for that company with that type of uh, culture. Yeah, I mean, that makes a ton of sense to me, right? I mean, and, and anyone who kind of comes from a, an athletic background, right? Uh, if you come off the field, you come off the court, you, you, you're immediately getting that feedback from the head coach, the assistant coach, whoever it might be, um, to be able to go in back in a couple minutes later and, and not make the same mistake. So why doesn't that translate to business? It, it should, is what you're saying in theory. Yeah, yeah. I don't think there. Were, I don't think you grabbed the the face mask in any way and shook it. I didn't see. <laughs> Not I didn't see that. Yeah. 
Um, speaking of the field and the court, you know, I know you've, well, you and I have spent a lot of time on the court, um, on the ski slopes, uh, on mountain bikes even. So I know your, your passion for sports. Um, how has that passion played a role in, um, your leadership style, um, you know, your creative thinking process, um, um, how does that translate into um, sort of your, uh, you know, professional life? That's a great question. <clears throat> well, I think I think being present and, and not having any distractions. You know, I think right now when you've got so everybody being remote behind screens, you know, eye contact, calm, you know, calm hands. Um, no distractions, you know, that's very similar to sport, right? You wouldn't be doing two other things. Um, mm. you know, do, you know, doing, not talking, right. The, the, you know, one of the tells I think in sport is when people talk too much about the gear, too much about, you know, too much name dropping and not enough, just, you know, being in there and playing. And that's certainly what I see in business, right? If somebody's spending a lot of time talking about their old job, talking about the mm. people they know, talking yeah. about the education they have, to me, that's all noise, right? It's important, but that should be assumed or in the background. And really what matters is what's happening in the moment and what the potential is. So I'm always looking for you know, people that are uh, willing to be authentic, willing to be themselves, willing to try new things, you know, it's overused, but be on a team, you know, know your position and play to somebody else's strengths. It's okay to pass the ball. It's okay to, to train. You know, we, we just had a very big new client uh, win recently and we had a new employee lead the account and I brought in all our best and brightest to support her. And what I said to the client, I said, we're all going to be there, but we want her to lead. So we're going to be on these calls but we're going to take a, you know, a more passive approach to the communication on the call so that she can learn. But we are coaching behind the scenes at every step of the way. We are making sure our team, you know, is showing up in the best possible way and prepared, making sure the follow-throughs happen. So that commentary of kind of each position that we're playing, sharing that, you know, in a business climate, setting those expectations, giving that feedback loop that's all the same as sports. Like well, and long. yeah. And, and, and I, you know, to make the, the other jump there, it's to confidence, right? Like you can't be an effective basketball player or you know, whatever sport it is you're playing. If you don't have the confidence in your ability. Yeah, exactly. And so you got to build up the confidence. <clears throat> you got to coach the confidence and then correct when, you know, correct when it's not there. Yeah. Well, you're talking about, you know, athletics and, and how it kind of has translated um, to your professional life. And, and we have to bring up the Kraken, uh, Seattle's new hockey team and your involvement in the naming of the team. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, I'm not I can't share too much of that because it's very <laughs> private. But, but yeah, I was, I was involved. And uh, one of the most awe-inspiring assignments of my career was was meeting captains of industry who are very successful in their own right you know making a decision on a name and a brand that will last multiple generations mm -hmm. and and getting you know 
getting that right, you know, when we talk about listening, you know, you, you absolutely have to listen both to the owners, but also to the fans. You have to have a distinct point of view and take risk. And, and then you have to create something, right? A name is only as good as what it becomes. And, and so showing that, you know, the manifestations of the name over time and what that would, you know, look like, whether it be a headline in the newspaper or on a jersey or people talking side by side at a bar or in their home, you know, all of that, you know, is really, really critical. And I think having fans, right, that can take ownership uh, is also really, really critical, you know, when you're looking at a sports name and, and the brand around the sport. You know, we're lucky in Seattle because there was just such, there is such fantastic desire and demand for that Kraken team that, you know, the tickets sold out. I think it was in 11 minutes, they oversold mm-hmm. the season tickets. And so the relationships with the fans, you know, between deposits being made and dropping the puck, you know, there's a lot of excitement and there's a lot of idle time right now. And so, you know, if you look at what the Kraken's done, they've done a fantastic job of, you know, building a diverse, you know, team of humans, you know, in their in their front office. And, you know, community outreach has been really critical for them. They're building a practice facility, you know, they'll be programmed 18 hours of every day, 27 days a week. And that's mostly, you know, for the community to be able to, you know, play the game, learn the game, you know, have community around the game. And to me, that's, you know, that's how you build for the long term. Uh, so I've got a ton of respect for that team. I was just going to say, you know, to me, when you hear when I hear you t- talking about that experience, um, I've got to think like I try to put myself in that position. When you go into it, you probably have this idea of what it's going to be like and then what it ultimately becomes. Did, was there what was that like? you know, being involved in a project like that and how did it, how did it end up playing to how you originally thought it might go? Yeah, that's a great question, Scott. I mean, I think for me personally, it, um, I kept coaching myself to be selfless, to have, you know, informed opinions, but this is not my team, right? There are owners who put, you know, a lot of resources, a lot of energy, a lot of political capital behind the team. So listening to each owner's uh, perspective about what matters to them, what their goals are for the culture of the team, for the culture of the city. You know, Seattle's an interesting city and in there's you know, very much a provincial part of Seattle where it's the old Seattle where people have raised been raised there in multiple generations. And then you have this explosive growth with the technology companies and the biotech companies that are more um, international in their skills and, and backgrounds and more probably even more likely to be be hockey fans. And and so, you know, what I'm most excited about with that, the culture of the team is like, I actually think it's going to be, you know, in some ways, the connection point of a lot of different cultures in a relatively small city of people that probably wouldn't interact with each other until that until that puck drops um so i think the more you know the more i thought about the work the more i thought about the benefit to our city the benefit to people connecting with each other and the less it was about you know my idea or my team's ideas winning right it it wasn't about that it was much more about you know what's right and, and 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 really making sure that you know the community and the ownership group you know was behind you know every step of what's right and us, you know, serving up professional recommendations and assistance along the way. 
We've got about two minutes left, guys. So uh, if the Sonics come back, which we believe they will, will <laughs> you uh, be putting your imprint on that as well? I would beg for that. I would do anything for that. Yeah. I would. <laughs> I'll be at the front door, and I will. I'll learn HTML to work with the Sonics. Yeah, yeah there's so much love. There's so much love for that Sonics team, and uh, so much history. And and um, does anybody have know, a bigger Sonics uh, uh, collection of uh, of gear than you? <laughs> I'm sure there's a lot. I'm sure there's a lot. <laughs> well, with the Kraken, know. you know, with the Kraken, we met with. Um, some of the some of the Sonics legends, and we talked to them about what was the success of the Sonics with the Seattle community and with the broader league. And, and we talked to six different ex Sonics players. You've heard of them all. Every single one of them had the same piece of advice, which is get the players connected to the community, whether that be you know charity, whether that be um, you know just, you know being visible and living in those cities telling their backstories as humans uh, so people can identify with them and and i thought that was really beautiful because i would not have expected the players to talk about the community being the number one advice they would have for a new franchise and uh, i think that probably was special about the sonics is they you know they weren't there as mercenaries just to make the money they were there to build a great team in the city that they live in and they were raising their own families in and for me that's you know truly why i still love love the sonics Shane, this has been a lot of fun, man. I know you've got some, some things to get to tonight, um, but appreciate you taking the time with me and Scott and catching up, and uh, hopefully we can meet up with you in Seattle here soon at a Kraken game or Husky uh, Seahawk weekend or something. Yeah, thank you, guys. Uh, love you both, and anything I can do, can do to help, and uh, appreciate the time. Thanks, man. listening to believe you can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform check us out at believe.com and search for b-l-e-a-v on youtube